In this episode, I'm joined once again by writer Ran Priya. We discuss freedom, attention, psychedelics, schismogenesis, bibliomancy, and more. I'd like to say a big thank you to my paid patrons and subscribers for making all of this work possible. And if you'd like to support the podcast and gain access to some exclusive content alongside just supporting the podcast, then please find links in the description below. Otherwise, please enjoy. So, Ran Priere, thanks very much once again for joining us on Hermetics Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. I think it's roughly been about two years since we we last... Yeah, spoke. yeah, it was because COVID was happening, so it was 2020. 2020, and so it's been a pretty eventful two years. And, you know, reading over your blog, rampriere.com, and, 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 and what you've been doing, I mean, really, I want to open this up with a pretty big question because it, it seems... Maybe not your your mode of existing hasn't really changed all that much, but you you draw pretty hard and fast lines about what you're you know how you're uh, existing in the world. I would say, and so I was you know I was surprised to see you know you've you've sold the car, you've sold uh-huh. the house, you've sold up. Um, so I'm going to ask you the big question, you know, in relation to how you're living. How's the how's the how's the death of civilization treated you these past two years? <laughs> You know, I, I've, well, I've moved to Seattle. That's what's happened. I mean, my girlfriend got, she wants to live in, in the big city and uh, she's got a good job. I moved to Seattle and we are in the literal shadow of the space needle, like at a certain time of day at a certain time of year, the sun's behind it. That's, um, so I, I like to say I'm now a tourist in the apocalypse. Um, you know, I'm right here. Seattle is, uh, Seattle's an interesting city cause it's got a lot, it's got all the high tech stuff. And uh, a lot of the people in our building are like uh, foreign nationals that work at Amazon and tech companies. And uh, at the same time, Seattle has decided uh, not to come down too hard on the homeless. So it's, it's got a reputation as a good place to go if you're homeless. And a lot of the homeless are mentally ill. So, so in some ways, Seattle's like a big open ear, air uh, mental institution. There's, there's people shouting on street corners and, and, uh, you know, I was I was in I was lived in Pullman before, which is a college town. And when I went walking around on the walking trail, I was the weirdest person on the walking trail. <laughs> and out in Seattle, I'm the most normal person on Third Avenue. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, I, don't, I don't know the geography all too well of America, but I mean, you know, I know you like your green space and your nature. I mean, uh, how is that is, you in Seattle? You know, yeah, it is. I I can get to the water anyway. It's, it's a probably a 20 minute walk for me to get to Puget Sound and, and, uh, at least be by the ocean. I mean, not that, not full ocean, but it's the, you know, it's a large inlet from the Pacific ocean. Um, so, so that's okay. But yeah, I am kind of missing like being able to walk straight out my door and right walking in nature. Um, and so were you, were you driving a lot before in Pullman? Um, you know, not that much. I would drive, uh, I had to drive to the store to get groceries. That's mainly the driving I did. And I don't like driving. I know I have a slow reaction time, so uh, I'm really more comfortable not driving. So I'm happy to not be driving. Uh, um, I'm happy to have fewer responsibilities so I can focus more on writing and creative work. Um, so that's uh, overall, I think it's good to move here, except I really am going to miss like walking up and down that river in Pullman. Mm-hmm. Was it? Was it sort of cathartic to do all that to sell sell up in that way so basically you're all the common uh yeah. modern modern ties right you, you seem to pretty made a pretty clear line just said oh, sell them up move yeah i mean it's, it's relieving i don't i don't like to have responsibilities and uh you know i bought i bought the land i could do a, a quick segue to homesteading like uh like i bought that land in 2004 and i had this idea that homesteading was a way to go out and I could build fruit trees and have chickens and whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and I could get out of the normal way of living and my life would be easier. But, but it's, homesteading is really, really hard. It's for homesteading is for workaholics mm-hmm. uh, who love driving. And I'm because, because inevitably you have to go back into town to get a lot of things and I'm neither of those things. So, uh, so I abandoned that project. I bought the house uh, in on a if, probably if I had if my girlfriend hadn't come along I'd still be living in that house in Spokane, um, but uh, but I'd, it's nice to not have responsibility for a house. It's nice to be a renter where if something goes wrong, I don't have to fix it myself. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I'm in agreement. So that that sort of, I mean, you're one of the few few people of this sort of the uh, the the modern critical writers who really have made it clear that homesteading isn't isn't the idyllic escape to the wilderness, self sufficient dream. I mean, do you think that's possible in any sense? Oh, I mean, it, it works for some people. Um, it, people who are, you know, I, people who like to be busy all the time <laughs> can really thrive as homesteaders. I'm not like that, and. Well, uh, you know, I've got all these all these utopian visions of like like if we could have you know there's this guy who uh who lived in the woods in Maine for like 30 years mm, mm. and uh the last name was Knight, I forget his first name. Uh but he had to steal all his food. So that's the only thing wrong. He he had a perfect life um except that he had to creep out at night and break into nearby cabins and steal his food. And uh so one of my one of my utopian visions is, and this is possible not too far in the future, is we could have affordable drone delivery of groceries. That guy could have done that and and done no harm at all. Um, if you know, if you could like, if you could like just have a small source of money to get like groceries delivered by drone, or you know, maybe I mean that's something we could do with an unconditional basic income. I th- that's I think a lot about about techno utopia, and I also think a lot about post apocalypse mm-hmm. and. Uh, you know, when you first start thinking about the future, you think either the whole world's going to be techno-utopia or the whole world's going to be post-apocalypse. Um, and then you start to think of it with more granularity. You're like, okay, maybe this country is going to be high-tech and this country is going to be blasted. Um, and then and then it gets down to more and more granularity until you've got, got like, uh, where I live now, I walk, when I'm walking back from the store, I walk right by the Bill Gates Foundation and then I walk right over this... Uh, vacant lot that would fit right in with the fallout games <laughs> so there you've got like someone leaning towards technotopia and and post-apocalypse just in adjacent blocks so so i'm seeing that's i'm seeing the future with more granularity there's going to be more um you know or, or the line could even be inside of one person where i mean right now there are people in these like homeless camps that look very post-apocalyptic and they have cell phones <laughs> so I'm, I'm seeing a blend of those two things as we move on to this strange future Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I always think uh, many of the sci-fi films did get a fe- got quite close to that sort of vision. I mean, Judge Judge Dredd and uh, Blade Runner uh-huh. do it quite well, right? Where all the yeah. the techno utopians oh, yeah. end up condensing, and outside of that, you just have this sort of wilderness. But it's interesting you you, you mentioned the idea of you know uh, dro- what, what do you call it like drone droned in groceries, right? There's I think yeah. it's in Neil Stevenson's Diamond Age where nanotechnology has got to such a point where the nanobots are literally recompiling the drops of crumbed food which have been dropped and then that wow. food is free for anyone who wants it so it ultimately means it's just all these people who are who are living basically a monastic life just that like all the food they need is given and it, uh-huh. it makes me it makes me wonder you know the whole idea of ubis we might have touched on this last time but what hap- uh-huh. what happens to society once you go okay your basic needs are met now now what do you want to do yeah um and i've, I've got a couple of thoughts that uh, first of all, I think it's not going to work until we get out of um, growth-based economy because I think as long as we have a growth-based economy, the economy will attempt to grow by creating more needs to gobble up everybody's UBI. Mm-hmm. Um, but and another um, another thing about it, though, is um, there's this idea that, that people are going to just uh, sit and do nothing, but people like to be active. And, and be busy. And uh, so the, the best possible case for the UBI is, is it works, it doesn't cause a, you know, not enough people quit their jobs that it causes a collapse of everything and we all starve, the system can keep going. And then people gradually find things that they like to do. And then gradually those, those things that people find intrinsically enjoyable become the seeds of the next phase of our civilization. Um, so I, I don't think it's going to go that smoothly, but I, mm-hmm. I do think a UBI is going to be good. And I think in the short term, what it can do is just give workers more leverage to to hold out for good working conditions. Because there are a lot of people in, in terrible jobs that uh, they can't quit because they they need the jobs for basic necessities. And and uh, if if we have a UBI, people will still go to jobs, but the employers would have to compete more in terms of working conditions to get people to go work there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, well, yeah, I do wonder in that case, you know, 
if certain people would actually pick up the uh, less sought after jobs as like a societal duty. Um, yeah, you know, I, I like to walk around picking up litter. Um, I actually find it, um, if I had a job, picking up, picking up litter would not be a bad job. There's nobody, uh, I don't have to work with people. <laughs> I don't have to hurry. I don't have to multitask. And every, everything I do is in a very tiny way making the world better. Um, so, so yeah, I, I think there are some jobs that are considered, um, that people think nobody would do them that people would still do. Mm-hmm. Is there any, is there any time where you, uh, you find, uh, socialization fairly agreeable? Uh, when I find, oh, I see when I hang out with other people, yeah. um, 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 you know, um, well, it's, it's sure. I mean, I mean, I can, I can, well, depends on the people I'm with, you know, if, if I'm with the right people, I can totally hang out and have a good time. Yeah. Um, and I want to start having some more, uh, gaming, uh, gaming days now that I'm in the city, I haven't got around to it yet, but, uh, but, you know, get around for, for board games or tabletop gaming. So yeah, just the big, the big change that I've seen in your blog over the, actually really the past two years, but you, you said, you know, the sort of the five years, I think the big, the big change you've made is is one of the realizations that many other tech critical and modernity critical writers uh, have come to. And I mean, even even John Zerzan has come to this: is that really what we're dealing with in terms of mental health, with the problems of the modern world, and the mental problems that we're we're facing from that. Um, these aren't really these these are practical issues on one level, but do, do you think that really what we're seeing is uh, spiritual problems? Well, it's well, it's. Spiritual is a loaded word, um, but but I mean I think the mental health is pretty obviously being caused by technology, and you know it's hard to put our finger. Everybody knows that that uh, social media is causing um, the causing anxiety, but nobody can quite put their finger on how it's happening. But uh, but I think that's clearly has something to do with. It. I think uh, I think we're having a motivational crisis. Like I used to write about collapse. I'd write about um, resources running out and, and, you know, energy and resources. And those are important, but, but lately I'm focusing more on motivational collapse on the system breaking down because nobody wants to do the things that are necessary to keep it going. And, um, part of that I think is because, uh, so we have these, these technological tools that can very reliably make us feel rewarded hmm. and it makes uh, you know, the real grit of that we have to do to keep the society going feel less rewarding. Mm-hmm. You're speaking primarily of social media. Yeah, social media, and also, um, also games like uh, you know, I I totally play video games. Um, but but at the same time, I recognize that uh, that uh, they could be um, getting us. There could be like training our reward circuits. Or you know what I don't know if I like the circuit metaphor, but but training our uh, our our psychology of reward to be a little bit askew and not able to deal as much with uh, with the reality with the physical world that we have to live in. Mm-hmm. Do you think? What, I mean, one answer that people are giving to that is actually to gamify real life, right? Gamify school and gamify everything. Do you think that's an applicable answer, or do you think that might be just doubling down on the problem? Um. I think, well, I sometimes have the thought that, you know, politicians, usually to be a politician, you first have to be a lawyer and get a law degree. And uh, what if politicians had to first be game designers? I think uh, if society as a whole could be designed more from a perspective of uh, how to make it rewarding. Um, at, at the same time, I, I'm sure there are dark sides to gamification that I haven't thought about. Um, but uh, but o- overall, um, yeah, it. it uh, I think we could make uh, the system work better if we if we tried harder to make things more uh, more intrinsically rewarding. I mean, that's what it comes down to. Is our system right now is based largely on extrinsic um, reward and punishment. You know, you have to get a, you have to do this, or you you'll have to live on the streets. You have to do this so that you'll get money, and then with the money you can make other people do things, and. Uh, and we've drifted a long way into extrinsic uh, motivation, and we need to move back toward 
intrinsic motivation um, where you know people do things because they find this they, they just enjoy it for its own sake hmm. do you think we might have moved into extra uh, extrinsic motivation so much though that people have actually lost touch i mean th- so the extrinsic and I'm writing about this recently, actually, but the extrinsic motivation of you need to do this because of fear, not uh-huh. because of the reward, but because of the oh, pun- yeah. ultimately something veiled as a punishment, but we didn't ever address it as a punishment, right? So it's like, well, if you don't do this, get a job, get a good grade, go to yeah. school, you won't be able to pay your bills, therefore you'll be on the street. But it's like yes. we we wrap that up in well actually it's the reward of having a great job and having oh i see right you see what i mean but do you think do you think that the we've schooled out like the schooling the school system or the way we've taught ourselves has gone on for so long with regard to that way of thinking that many people now if they were given free reign would would just wouldn't actually know what it is that they truly want to do yeah this i totally i totally agree with that and and um and it's not it doesn't even matter that it's been going on for hundreds of years. If it's just gone on your life, if you've been raised, if you've gone through a schooling system that's based on uh, on that that uh, that's based on that system, then it's harder for you to get out of it. And it could be fixed in 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 theory in one generation. If we have if we all of a sudden, I mean, it's not going to happen. That things don't really happen that fast. But but uh, the way to fix that is start by changing uh, the school systems. You know there. There are schools um, where I actually visited this like anarchist school a few years back where where kids would not be required to do anything. They would just be allowed to hang out and do whatever until they found something they were interested in. And the teachers would like help them do that thing. Um, this is a very school. It's it's uh, it's not something that everyone could go to. It takes a lot more uh, more attention and skill by the instructors. In a school that works that way than a school where people are just told what to do. So it's, it's a, it's a, that's why we can't just suddenly shift over. But it could be like, like in shifting from the society we have now to one that's more um, mentally healthy, um, you could start with little seeds of, of people who are doing something well, and then it spreads out to, to more and more people um, doing it that way. That's, um, it's kind of like energy, like, like okay, we're going back to like, like the energy collapse, like the renewable energy is not coming online fast enough for a smooth, seamless transition out of fossil fuels into renewable energy. Mm-hmm. Um, but in some places are going to pull it off. The places, some places are, you know, maybe Germany or someplace is going to, or, you know, some, some or smaller regions than that are going to pull it off and they're going to make that smooth transition. And suddenly they've got, they're not depending on fossil fuels. They're manufacturing solar panels with energy from solar panels, and they can spread that out uh, to the places that didn't do so well. And that can happen with uh, with energy. It can happen with uh, with uh, social reforms for mental health. I mean, I'm being optimistic here. There's going to be some ugly places, but I think in the long term, humans tend to figure things out. Mm-hmm. I mean, the UK is doing pretty well on that front. We're apparently at 30 percent. Uh, for the oh, whole wow. country, yeah, no, it's pretty good, but we're very, very small, you know. Well, yeah, I think people think of the UK as quite big because of our history, but you know, we're a tiny, yeah. tiny island, so yeah, you know, and we slowly close ourselves off to everyone. So there you go. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's there's a really great thing that you uh, you wrote in in your sort of recap of the five years. These little notes that you just put up actually today, uh-huh. um, where you said, and it really relates back to the way we're schooled. What we were just talking about there, where you said nobody ever believed anything unless they got something out of it. Yeah, I mean, that, I'm thinking of that in the context of like disinformation, and there's this this general idea that uh, that people are coming up with these with these terrible lies, and they're kind of like. Uh, I don't know. It's it's like the people saying the wrong things are being completely blamed. When in fact, um, it's it's always a choice. People always choose what to believe, and uh, and uh, you know if there's if there's information out there that's obviously wrong, some of the responsibility is with the people who decide to believe stuff. That uh, for for um, you know, I was just reading. I was. Uh, reading this thing about, you know, John Verveke? Uh, no, um, no. He's, uh, he's, well, anyway, um, he talks about this kind, these kinds of knowing, uh, 
and there's like propositional knowing and which is like statements that can be true or false and there's like knowing like how to ride a bicycle there's what he calls perspectival knowing of like uh, how to like ground yourself in a certain environment and then there's like knowing this like a sense of belonging and i think what's happening with you know people believing crazy things is to satisfy their sense of belonging they are choosing propositional statements um, they're choosing propositional statements that can be true or false based on how well it satisfies their sense of belonging and not based on how well those, uh, those statements fit against reality. Um, and uh, so a lot of the, uh, the, the uh, crazy beliefs uh, are happening because there's a demand for, for beliefs that make people feel good. I mean, I've always felt this way with respect to people pulling out evidence for basically one thing. But in the age of the Internet, you can go quickly pull out evidence for the other side of any debate. You know, you yeah. pull out. So it's almost like, well, what are we doing here? Because are, are we actually, do we actually believe the thing that we are trying to prove or are we, are we just trying to prove it in a sense of, as you say, it's a belonging, right? I mean, yeah. and this happens a lot with things which are relative, like diet. Yeah. Diet yeah. is a clear one, right? People bring out oh, yeah. things for veganism, bring out things yeah. for carnivore. But you think, well, what what is actually happening in these discussions? You know, it's strange. Yeah, uh, something I see happening a lot is people choose what to believe for emotional reasons, and they're not not totally aware they're doing it. They think they're being rational, but if you if uh, if they look more closely at their own mental states, they're choosing what to believe for emotional reasons than going and looking for rational arguments to fit that. And the internet has made that really easy. Mm. Can you think of a com like a common example where you see that at the moment? Mm. Nothing's popping in my head right now. Mm. Mm. So what do you, what do you, outside of that, that belonging, I mean, what do you think it is for someone to believe something? Do you think it is just that sort of a chase after a security, even if it, well, I guess belonging to a group is a security, but once you know something, right, it's like you can draw a box and you're done. you like, I, I, know uh -huh. about, I know about that. Do you think that's mostly what it is? Um, boy, I've kind of lost the thread of, of uh, <laughs> well, what we're talking uh, about here. So, uh, so the fact that people only believe something if they uh, get yeah. something out of it. People believe things because they get something out of it. What do people get out of things they believe? Um, they could get a sense of belonging. They could get a sense of certainty. Um, you know, I was just reading this thing about different, different. Um, there's two different kinds of curiosity. And one kind of curiosity is just the thirst for knowledge and just wanting to understand more things. And the other kind of curiosity is, is you're bothered by not knowing. You're bothered by uncertainty. And you have to like, like settle this uncertainty and uh and that's uh that's unhealthy we need to be more comfortable with uncertainty i saw another study where um people who have certainty about the future um uh are like more likely to to have like other like bad cognitive habits if you're if you're too certain about what's going to happen in the future and then something happens you don't expect, then you have to deal with that. Um, you have to like wrestle with why you're wrong instead of getting on with, with whatever's actually happening. So, so I think, uh, yeah, I guess the message is like one of the motivations for people to, uh, to believe, believe weird things, believe like things that don't fit the evidence is they want to feel certain. Another motivation is they want to be part of other people who believe something. And, and there's also like just, there's this thing I wrote about called schismogenesis. <laughs> schismogenesis is something that happens in, in nature and evolution, but it also happens uh, in society where somebody will believe they, they just want to be different. They want to set themselves apart from other people. Um, I think this, this is a, uh, you know, it's easy to bash flat earthism because no one's going to come up and get mad at you because everyone knows flat earthers are silly. So I like to, t to use them as my flat earthers as examples of people who believe something silly. Like, why would somebody believe the earth is flat against so much evidence? Mm. And part of it is they can set themselves apart intellectually from other people. Mm -hmm. do, you, do you think in a certain, to a certain sense, though, that uh, setting yourself apart in such a clear way, especially in the, in the modern world, which is very uh, routine, very habitual, uh -huh. is almost like a, 
it's, it's almost like a good starting point for freedom because from that position where you're almost like ridiculed or laughed at, you realize uh-huh. the certainty that every well, the false certainty that everyone else is living in. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's some of that, like, like yeah, one reason for, yeah, you can, you can set yourself apart in a way to make you think that other people, uh, that you're, uh, that you're understanding things better than other people. Or yeah, you could get a sense of freedom of like, you know, once you can believe something this, this crazy, then you can believe anything. Mm. Is there any, is there anything like that, that, that you would, you know, on, uh, socially on par with flat earth that you personally believe? Oh, do something, there's something I believe that's as the people, uh, people, uh, you know, people, if you said, uh, I believe this thing, people would be like, wait, what, you know? Oh, well, I'm a, I'm a big bang denier. Um, and you know, the evidence of deep space is a lot vaguer than the evidence of like being able to see the earth is around from space. But, uh, but yeah, I follow this fringe astronomer named Halton Arp who found that, uh, strong evidence that quasars are not the most distant objects in the universe. They're associated with nearby galaxies and they're like quasar like spat out of, of galaxies like seeds and the quasars are not red shifted because of recession of velocity. They're red shifted for some other reason. And if red shifts, uh, you know, supposedly the, or because everything and we look in deep space is red shifted because, which means it's moving away from us, which means the universe is expanding. But if the light is shifted toward the right end of the spectrum for some other reason than recession velocity, then it's possible we don't even have an expanding universe. So, uh, I mean, we could still have an expanding universe and non recession velocity red shifts, but yeah, that's my, that's a, that's an example of, of a weird thing that I believe. Mm, mm. And do you, I mean, that's incredible. I'm going to have to ask you for the links for this astronomer afterwards because anything like uh-huh. that is interesting. But do you think, I mean, I don't know if you've come across the uh, the people, John Zerzan told me about these people, but um, the bird, the birds aren't real people. So it's almost oh, like, a, you know, a, schismo, a schismogenesis, which is knowingly um false right so they're they're trying to protest that birds literally aren't real so it's i see like that <laughs> yeah sorry. i see that on reddit i would assume it's a joke are the people who actually believe that no 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 they don't believe okay. it but they're, they're, okay. act, they're acting in a schismo a schismogenic okay. way right uh-huh yeah yeah I've, I've i've seen references to that on reddit yeah, and i've seen, also seen people saying that oh like north dakota is not real <laughs> they, i don't know anyone who's ever been there um and you know this it's as long as people don't take it too seriously, it's fun to play with reality that way and, uh, and, uh, you know, believe crazy things, but, but, uh, yeah. Mm. I think those, those kind of shocks just to try segue into something you mentioned to me, because really, you know, when I, all the years I've been reading your blog, I've, I've, I've seen you as someone who's has a, a very subtle quote unquote mystical. And once again, extremely loaded word, mystical, uh-huh. uh, mystical direction in the sense that everything you're really doing is about being present. And those sort of shocks that we're talking about, you know, schismogenic, like someone says something to you and you're like, it's so out of the habitual, out of the common day, every day, that it shocks uh-huh. you. And it brings you to okay. attention, right? And this, this seems to be almost like the, the, the reason for much of your writing is, how can we just be fully present of the life we've been given and being fully present, right? We don't need, don't get subsumed into the modern world and all its gimmicks. Like, how do we do that? Ah. Huh. Um, you know, I've, I've, I've been working a lot. I do a lot of like exercises to try to get myself more present. I, I wouldn't have noticed that my writing does that, but, uh, you know, my writing, I'm just trying to be, just trying to, to ask interesting questions and, and, uh, and say stuff that I haven't seen already, but, but I've been working a lot on trying to be more present because I think that's, that's one of the keys to mental health. Um, uh, and anxiety comes from like, I want to say anxiety comes from being, um, small in space and big in time where you're focusing on some tiny thing and you're thinking about how it's going to ruin your life years down the line. And the, the cure for anxiety is to go the opposite and to be big in space and small in time to focus on this moment and then to focus your senses as widely as possible. Um, so that's, that's one of the things I work on to try to be more, more present is to be uh is to be big in space and small in time that's a man it's an extremely uh articulate articulate way way of putting it really oh thanks yeah <laughs> and do, do you find your because i mean you're you're uh 
Well, you will talk about this openly on your blog, so I'm sure you'll have to talk about it here. But you're a fairly prolific, uh, should we say, a supporter of psychedelics and, and drug uses and oh, yeah. to do that, right? Yeah, yeah. I I actually did a uh, I actually did like two grams of Liberty Caps on Saturday to try to clear my brain uh, for just for for this interview. That's but I don't I don't actually do it that much. It's been a while since I've done like it's been more than a year since I've done LSD because I just haven't found the right time and place for it. Um, but uh, but yes, I think, uh, I think psychedelics are, are valuable and for most people, um, they're, they're helpful and I think they're going to be more accepted and more people are going to use them and they're going to have an overall positive effect on society. Do you find they help you in being like in being fully present? Um, no, actually not. I mean, not no, I mean, what's helped me being fully present is just grinding through these difficult exercises of reminding myself to be fully present. But, uh, but, um, you know, the main, my main benefit I've got from psychedelics is to appreciate nature more. Yeah. Um, you know, I can go, uh, on my, my, the best days of my life have been like taking LSD and walking in a, in, in a good natural area. I can just sense that, uh, that, uh, you know, I, I'm, when I'm being careful, I avoid the word nature and civilization, and I use more precise language of the, the human-made world and the non-human-made world. So if I talk about nature, somebody can someone say, well, everything is natural, which is that, that's a valid, <laughs> I mean, that's a valid semantic perspective. If you say everything is natural, you lose this important distinction that I, I make by distinguishing between the human-made world and non-human-made world. And when I'm on psychedelics, the non-human-made world is heaven. And the human-made world is clunky and ugly, um, but but it's getting better, you know. And and that's if there's something that humans are good for, it's for getting better at building stuff, and you know, so that the stuff that we make can approach the the elegance and complexity and robustness and beauty of the non-human-made world. But I don't think we'll ever be able to meet it one on one to one, though. No, no, um, no. But uh, but yeah, it's and you know I I wonder I think about that I wonder like are humans just going to go extinct? Are are we going to make? Um, are we going to actually make a really awesome world in the future? I don't know. Um, you know, there's this this famous saying um, by Arthur C. Clarke that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. I like to say any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from nature. That as we, uh, as our technologies get better, they're going to be more autonomous, more alive, more complex, more, uh, you know, more like fractal patterns. Um, it's, uh, it's just this, this vision I have that the human made world can get more like what I see in, uh, in the non human made world. Mm. You know, I'll never get, go ahead. Uh, I was going to say, do so you think there's sort of utopian future in that sense? We want that's just sort of harmonious. Yeah, I mean, I yeah, yeah, I I do. I like to think about utopian futures, and uh, you know, I I I believe in aiming high, uh, and you know, maybe we'll never get there, but but I believe in aiming high for humanity. I think that uh, I think if you were to put every possible human society on a percentile scale, where zero is the worst and 100 is the best. I think we're not even out of the single digits. That's how much room we have to do things better. Wow. Really? Yeah. We, I mean, uh, just in terms of history, though, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming you don't abide by the progressive view of history. So would there actually be a point oh. in time where you would say, actually, we might have got out of the single digits? Um, oh, I mean, I think, uh, I think maybe some of the prehistoric, um, like, like I've read David Graeber's, actually, I didn't finish. I've read most of David Graeber's book. Um, uh, David Graeber and David Wengrow, the book about uh, ancient. Uh, oh man, its, its title is escaping me. But uh, but dawn of everything. Uh, dawn of everything. Yes, yes. And uh, you know they have they have pretty good evidence that that in prehistory there were um, relatively large and complex civilizations that did not that were not repressive. We don't have evidence that uh, that they were uh, they were repressive. And uh, it was also a time of great experimentation uh, where you know, people are trying all kinds of crazy stuff. I'm sure, I, I, I think that if there are some forgotten societies in prehistory, they're probably pretty awesome. And, 
and you know not as good as our society in every way but but a lot more fun to live in than ours is um mm-hmm. and uh and certainly if you want to go back to like to like uh uh hunter gatherer societies you know i don't want to romanticize them some of them were terrible but some of them were were really nice and and i'm sure that the best ones have been forgotten um so yes i think humans have been uh have, we've we've managed to have some good societies and when i talk about like like you know it's, it's dangerous to to talk about um primitive societies as an ideal for where to go because the what people read into that is oh we have to go we have to be primitive we have to we have to give up all our technologies to live well and i don't want to take that angle when i take the angle is there have been societies that like uh in the cambridge book of hunter gatherers they mention this one uh this one tribe that does not even have the concept of freeloading there are people who do no useful work their entire lives and nobody cares because uh the work that they do everyone finds intrinsically rewarding so rather than say oh we have to live like hunter and gathering to do that i can just say well there's one that's been done one society did it it's been done um so we can do it and we can try to do it at a high level of technology if we can get away with it mm-hmm. but the overhaul there is an internal one right like you, you yeah. know, you're not going to prove to the modern the modern man that the what he would consider freeloading is okay yeah it is yeah and it, it, we're, i'm i mean i really think if i had a time machine i'd go like a thousand years in the future and and uh, i'd expect it to be a lot better than it is now and maybe i'm wrong um if you were to put uh if you were to put money on uh we'll speak about money in a minute but if you were to put money uh-huh. on on that time machine time travel journey if you were to put money on whether or not it'd be better or worse saying uh let's say let's keep it fairly soon let's say like uh-huh. f- 50 years uh it could What's, easily be worse than 50. it get this this whole century could be pretty ugly i mean um there's this great history book called a distant mirror about the the late middle ages like there was the like the 1200s were actually pretty good it was a pretty good time to be alive and then and then all kinds of bad stuff started happening and and like plagues and, and climate change and uh and there were like a few hundred years that were pretty bad and then you could argue that never actually got that the modern age while better in many ways is in some ways worse so uh but but i i, I think uh I would not want to go 50 years in the future. I think it might be worse than where we are now. Uh, just, just how long history takes to grind through things. And, you know, p- humans make a lot of mistakes. It's, it's, there's so many exciting things happening though. Like, like 50 years from now, it, it could totally depend on where you are or, or what your state of mind is, whether it's better or worse. Um, there's going to be cool stuff happening in, uh, in, well, like we've got psychedelics now, right? But mm-hmm. but pretty soon, it's going to become more realistic to do like direct brain hacking. Like there's going to be technologies to like, you know, you could maybe like put nanates. They did this with fruit flies. They they had some fruit flies and they uh they I mean they had to be genetically modified and they put nanites in them. So this is not going to happen soon with humans, but uh, but they could like directly stimulate the brains of uh, of these fruit flies. So I think that's on the horizon. Is technologies where you can like hack your own mental state just by um you know stimulating nanites in your brain or, or transcranial stimulation of implants um that and and that's just another thing that could go really well or it could be another place for humans to do it wrong every possible way before we finally do it right mm. i mean it's another another sort of notch on the idea that the future will be completely granular right like yeah place would be might be you know homelessness and poverty but at the same time they might all be wearing the most advanced vr headsets or something yeah yeah Mm -hmm. but speaking of money there's another little note that you made um where you said that money is zero sum in the sense of like as soon as you've attached meaning to money in some sense Uh really you've you've entered this zero sum relationship where you've just you sort of destroyed both right like it, yeah it doesn't make any meaning doesn't make any sense anymore once you've done that yeah i mean people look for um like like people look in this age in late stage capitalism everyone's looking for meaningful work and every time i see an article about work i always go through and in place of the word work i write work for money 
and it really makes it more clear what's going on. We have this, the word work uh, in our culture implies paid work and uh, that kind of, you know, being paid to do something really messes up the whole, um, the whole uh, uh, way of like activity being the possibility for activity to be like healthy. Um, I mean, everybody there, uh, there used to be this, I mean, I guess some people still say this, people said it a lot like in the eighties, do what you love and the money will follow. And, and then people do the, do what they love and like, Oh man, I, I, I really like cooking. So I became a chef and now I hate it because <laughs> it's my job. Um, so, uh, I think more people are coming around to, uh, to the idea that, that you should separate your life into stuff you do for money that you don't really care about and you want to be as easy as possible and then stuff you do on your own time not for money that you really enjoy mm-hmm. it reminds me of um a long time uh, a while ago i think they probably stopped doing this now but they used to paint on the top of buses in uh, new york and places where there's skyscrapers that people might uh, you know jump oh. up jump off they used to paint uh-huh. the top, they used to paint on the top of the buses uh, the website for 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 a job center right and how many oh, open wow. jobs are, as if as if like you know the thing that's going to stop you is is basically the, uh, the co- i'm not going to kill co- myself yeah. i can get a job wow <laughs> yeah like like the a final coercion from capitalism it's like come uh-huh. on we need your we need your paid labor uh-huh mm. yeah mm-hmm. so one thing just to just to draw in because it, you you've been thinking a bit more about on on religious lines so you were saying that we were drawing the psychedelics thing once again you're saying that psychedelic uh-huh. so you, you, you just to jump back to that you you, you think psychedelics are really going to change and we could probably draw in a little bit of ai because you've been yeah. you've been writing a lot about ai as well as this sort of religion um you're saying psychedelics going into the future religion's really going to change yeah um i'm i want to be careful with the word religion the word <laughs> It points to so many different things. Religion points to it points to the actual beliefs. It points to the fervency of beliefs. It points to community. It points to ritual. Um, there are certain kinds of beliefs that some people think count as religion. Other kinds of beliefs don't count as religion. So, so I think rather than saying, well, I'd like to say, is psychedelics are going to change theology. They're going to change. Um, they're going to change. I started this concept the other day. It's uh it's uh, um, existential theory of mind. Like if you if you're talking to me, you have a theory of mind of like what I'm like and what makes me tick, what's going on inside my mind. You know, if I'm I'm uh, you know with uh, I'm I'm house sitting, I'm dog sitting right now. My theory of mind is these dogs is they uh, they want to eat and they want to go for walks. Um, an existential theory of mind is like a theory of like reality and where you fit into it. Um, you know, if people ask about the meaning of life, what they're asking for is what is the invisible larger context in which my life makes sense? And, uh, and that's the kind of thing that's going to change. Um, like, like I think the idea of when people talk about the word religion, the, the, well, the straw man of religion is the sky father deity. There's like this, this bearded guy in the sky and he's watching us and he's going to punish us. And, you know, educated people just can't take that seriously. That's, that's on the way out. And, uh, and I started to notice this in the nineties that, uh, people started saying in context where their grandparents would have said, God, people started saying the universe, you know, maybe this is the universe sending a message. This is what the universe wants for me. And, uh, so that's, that's even before psychedelics came back that the people were, uh, I mean, I, I suppose it it was probably a part of a fallout of like psychedelic use in the sixties. If people start thinking of, uh, of, um, the, the divine, the, you know, the, the larger world that we're a part of, um, in terms of something that's in all of us and not something that's, uh, that's separate from us. I mean, that's the kind of thing, uh, that like Spinoza got, I wish I'd, I wish I'd done the actual research to find out what Spinoza actually said, but the, the kind of stuff that Spinoza almost got excommunicated for about like talking about a woo woo universal God, um, is someday the Pope is going to say that because that's where um, our theology is going, and psychedelics are part of that. The idea that uh, that God is not a being in the sky; God is something inside of all of us. It's the universal consciousness within all of us, 
and psychedelics are going to give more people that experience or that you know habit of thinking that way do you think there'll be a sort of turbulent era where uh what you might see as an old guard have to have to you know come face to face with many new people finding it out for themselves via psychedelics yeah i mean i think i think that's probably happening right now um but it's, it's going to happen more as i mean there are certain cultures that just don't use psychedelics right now and uh but as psychedelics get more mainstream there's going to be uh um different kinds of thinking about the 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 unseen world that, that we may be part of um and we may get you know the um uh uh primitive people have shamans and shamans like uh are like a they integrate like people have these weird experiences and there needs to be like a connector there needs to be something that ties these experiences into people's lives and that's something that uh that we're still struggling with right now is some kind of uh public institution or or you know a kind of person a kind of therapy whatever you have it that will uh that will uh serve as a bridge between experiences people have in psychedelics and their day-to-day lives and there's a lot of room for uh for new stuff in that region you know to bridge those things mm-hmm. i mean this this reminds me of something of uh, in plato's academy for the uh for the sort of uh, i may be wrong on this like in uh-huh. terms of it, of terms of the specifics of it, but I believe it was that the people who are the uneducated or the, or the somewhat educated who were going off to war, but who weren't, let's say, smart enough um, to to understand the theology or the higher ideas, were given a, a sort of uh, what we'd now consider a psychedelic sort of potion, a drink, and oh, it made wow. them made them cease fears and see things, so they would they would actually no longer fear death. And do you think oh. you know? With psychedelics, many people actually come out the come out the come out the other side of psychedelics, so to speak, with you know experiences of what's going to happen after, maybe rebirth, reincarnation, or whatever it is on their personal uh, quote unquote trip. Uh-huh. Do you do you do you see that as really being an impetus for the overhaul of society? Because once you once you potentially no longer fear death, a, uh-huh. lot, of, a lot of stuff starts to change, right? Yeah. Yeah, I haven't thought much about that, but that totally sounds that totally sounds like something that could happen. And and uh, you know, the the afterlife is something I think about a lot because um, it's fun to think about. You know, it's, I, I don't want to get stuck at any one particular belief about it, but but uh, you know, there's um, I think the most interesting question is not what do you think happens after you die, but what if you got to decide what would happen after you die. What if the afterlife could be whatever you want it to be? What would you want it to be? I think that's a much, much more fun and interesting question. And, uh, and you know, given that we don't know what it, there's, I mean, it's, it's unknowable. You can, you can uh, get some sense of it, but uh, you don't know until you get there. I think we could have more fun with, uh, with ideas about what could possibly happen and, and what world, what we're part of. The, the simulation, um, you know, there's, there's a, I mean, I, this is a new idea. Like like 20 years ago, nobody was running, running around saying we're living a simulation. Now it's it's almost gone mainstream that we're living a simulation, and uh, the because we live in an age of computers, people imagine it's a computer simulation, um, and uh, I think I think it, as I think the simulation theory is the computer simulation theory is like a metaphor for just a more general way of thinking in which the consciousness we're in right now is a small part of something larger that we're not aware of right now. It's like uh, anyone who's played a first-person video game or a tabletop role-playing game is familiar with playing a character. You know that the character is part of you, but the character doesn't know that you know about the character, but the character doesn't know about you. And uh, I think in addition to psychedelics, that's another thing that's changing our, our way of thinking about, uh, uh, you know, l- larger worlds that we could be part of, that uh, just the metaphor of like a video game character, or an RPG character, what if I'm a character of some, some larger person and I'm in here to do some, I mean, or maybe to have fun, maybe to learn something, whatever. But, I mean, this is, this is fun stuff to think about. I don't want to have any like serious beliefs about it, but, uh, but I enjoy thinking about that stuff. 
Mm. What is your what is your own sort of preferred afterlife? You know, you suddenly you, um, you finally pass away and you're somewhere. I mean, what what was your pref- what's your preference? Oh, you know, I I like to think this is my crazy idea that we are that you know we've got all these uh, all this entertainment, we've got games, we've got movies, we've we've got all these. Never in human history have we been exposed to so many such diversity of interesting fictional worlds. So. My crazy idea is that we've come in here from some place with fewer possibilities into this place where we see all these possibilities. And, you know, when you die, you can go off into your favorite video game. I, I don't, I mean, I don't really believe that. It's a fun thing to, <laughs> to pretend that I believe, you know, that when I can just, uh, after I die, I'll be like, I have this, the, the pure stuff of reality and I can live in, in uh, if I could live in any video game, it would be a uh, Legend of Zelda Wind Waker. That, <laughs> that game just, uh, I just love the vibe of that game. But uh, but I think probably it's, it's going to have to be a surprise. It's like uh, it's I do think I do think that mind is more fundamental than matter. We can get into like some of the stuff that Bernardo Castrup is talking about and Donald Donald Hoffman. Man, I'm, I think that's the guy's name. Um, but uh, but I think that's where um, metaphysics is going. Is that uh, is that uh, we're going to have to abandon materialism. At least people who think really carefully, like you know, the uh, the idea of a third-person universe that's out there um, is very convenient. But um, when you really examine it closely, I don't think it fits. I think uh, I think reality is first-person, and then um, if reality is first-person, then death is backing off from what I am into something deeper inside me and more universal. Um, you know, I think, I think the universal is not, God isn't somebody who watches us like from a spy satellite. Um, there's, there's a God. I mean, I'm talking about like big tent God. When I say God, I'm like, you know, you can, that can mean whatever you want it to mean. It can mean uh, the, the mathematical laws that underlie space time. Um, but, uh, but it's, it's deep inside of all of us. And I think dying is like backing off into something deeper inside yourself. And uh, from there, um, I don't know, I'm ready to be surprised. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And this is what uh, Kastrup and Hoffman have been discussing? Yeah, yeah, there's, um, let's see if I can find, uh, Donald Hoffman has a book called The Case Against Reality. He's got some, uh, he's got uh, this recent video where he goes into more details about it. And his idea is that um, is that the reality that the, the reality that appears before our senses uh, is like a dashboard or a user interface to the true reality, which is way too complex for us to see. It's like uh, it's like what we see in front of us is like desktop icons in a computer. It's been optimized for us to work with. Um, like when you work on a computer, you, you don't want to see all the little voltages of, uh, of millions of little, uh, micro transistors and diodes. That's, that's too complex. That's the true reality underneath the computer, but you can't work with that. You have to work with these simplified user interfaces. And his idea is that, uh, the entire physical world is like a user interface that's optimized for us to work with it rather than optimized to give us the, the, uh, the actual truth. Um, and the, he thinks the actual truth is not physical; it's something else. Um, it's uh, you know, it's the universe of mind that underlies the universe of matter. Um, wow! This so, I mean, is, uh, so to ask a, ask an extremely abstract question. I mean, what would uh-huh. what would happen to uh, you know uh, the mind that is now tied to the physical if they were all of a sudden showed the showed the behind the scenes? You know, it would, you know, it reminds me of something that Terrence McKenna said about doing larger and larger doses of, uh, of psychedelics. He said, it's not that you get into some deeper truth that the things just get more and more peculiar as you take more. Um, I think it would be, if you, if you suddenly caught a glimpse of the, the actual reality, it'd be incomprehensible. And maybe that's part of our progress as a, as whatever we're doing here is to be able to comprehend deeper into it. 
Uh, or maybe we're just going to, to go from one user interface to another one. I don't know. I mean, that's pretty, that's pretty big stuff, man. Yeah, I know. I know. Yeah. I've, I've been, uh, yeah, I've been, it's, and at the same time, there's not a lot you can do with it practically. Like, like in the, you, know, you can go your whole life assuming that this physical world is as it appears to be and you'll do fine. But, but if you, uh, if you uh, want to get into to trippy stuff, there's really pretty strong argument to be made that, uh, that we are all in a, um, I mean, it's, it doesn't even have to be a simulation that someone is making and putting us in. It could just be a simulation that we made for ourselves to navigate something that's too big for us to understand. Mm. Do you think, do you think that's what people are doing in the modern world with respect to sort of the loop of schooling, grades, jobs, etc.? I mean, it's just a way of putting yourself uh, within a sort of a straitjacket so that uh, the world is understandable. Yeah. You know, I, I think that world is a mistake. It's, it's uh, the, you know, the, the world of regimented schooling and jobs. It's, it's just something we're doing the wrong way because we haven't figured out how to do it the right way. Um, you know, humans have only been, we've only been living in large complex societies for, uh, for a few thousand years, which, you know, it's, it's a lot compared to one person's lifetime, but compared to the whole sweep of, of uh, life on earth, a, a few thousand years is nothing. And I think, uh, I think we've just kind of fallen into this, this where there's a bunch of things that we figure out how to do and we're doing them badly and we're going to figure out how to do them well. Um, so, so I, um, well, I've, here's my real crazy idea that we are, we are, and again, it's something I not really believe, but it's, it's an idea I kind of toy with that, that we're headed for a breakdown of objective reality itself. If I could choose any kind of apocalypse, like, uh, that that uh or, you know let's just pretend let's pretend i'm writing fiction if i were to write fiction about apocalypse i would write about an apocalypse in which um we no longer have to share the same physical world we can all like everyone is like suddenly shut off um like split off into their own private universe and you know they gradually go mad so they have to like get back together with other people and form some kind of a new consensus about the universe they're going to live in together that, that would be my like uh my like uh, fun fictional apocalypse if I could write about one. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Do, do you think there's a like a clear reason maybe you you moved from thinking you know less about the practical stuff and the dropping out to these bigger questions? Do you think there's sort of a time where you think you know there's only so much you can really know about dropping out and eventually living that sort of lifestyle just leads you to the bigger questions? Um, you know I was I was into the paranormal before I was into to the critique of civilization. I was in, I was like reading books on woo woo stuff as a teenager. And, uh, so that's, that's like a, something I've been into for a long time. And, but, and the, the reason I got into the, the dropping out stuff is I just, you know, I just want my life to be good. I don't want to have to do this stuff that I don't enjoy for, for my whole life. And now that I'm in a position where, I mean, purely through luck, I've got, I've got enough money now that, uh, that, I don't have to like scramble to survive and I've got more time so I can like go explore some of these other ideas that I've been into all, all along. Mm -hmm. Well, we're coming up uh, to an, to an hour here. And I mean, one thing you mentioned in your email, which I actually know nothing about and I was super intrigued about, tell us a little bit about bibliomancy. Okay. Um, well, I, cause I saw that you had done a talk with someone on, on tarot. Do you say tarot or tarot? Uh, tarot. Yeah. Tarot. Tarot. So I saw that you'd done a thing on tarot and I'm like, bibliomancy is not that different from tarot. It's, it's actually, it's, uh, it's bibliomancy is a form of divination. And I define divination as any means of drawing meaning out of randomness. So, um, so, you know, with, with tarot, you draw a card at random and you, you look at it and it says something and, and that tells you, you know, it can give you advice, it can give you, a, um, it can help you make decisions, whatever. Um, bibliomancy is instead of cards, you open a book and drop your finger at random and whatever word your finger goes on, that's your, your divinatory result. Um, and uh, I want to, I should say... Um, I should start with a warning. Like if you're, if you're prone to like mental illness or schizophrenia, you should not do this. Your, if voices in your head frighten you, if you start doing 
uh, divination, you're creating a voice that's going to tell you things. And, and it's, there are people who are at risk for doing that. You have to have, uh, you have to like be able to like keep in balance and not, not get too much into it. Another thing I, I should say about it is that, uh, the more you do it, the less well it works. And this, I should say this is true of like divination in general. If you're drawing meaning from randomness and you do a hundred readings, it's gonna, it's gonna, um, go down it's going to vanish and it's just statistical noise anything meaningful you find it's just going to be flattened out but but the less often you do it the more likely you're going to get like like uh sometimes your my finger will land a, on, a, on a word and i'm like in the entire the entire book there could not have been a better place for my finger to land to fit this question i have and uh i don't want to get into i don't want to say exactly what results i have i don't want to like talk about the results i've had but but uh, I mean, I'm sure you find this with Tara also that like, you, you know, some people get like amazing results, like, wow, that's the perfect, that's uh, that fits this, that fits so well. Um, and with bibliomancy, it can be even more clear when you get these crazy words that like, that like, how did the, how did the, the book know that I was going to do that? And uh, uh, I should, um, the kind of book to use, you might think that like using a book that with great importance to you and great value would work better than using a book you don't care about, but it doesn't matter at all. The only thing that matters is the distribution of words. And, uh, which is why I use a dictionary. I would say for a beginner, a thesaurus would be better because it's easier to, if your finger, you know, if you're, if you're not sure exactly where your finger landed, the words are all around are basically the same kind of word. You're going to get a clear answer. Um, but, uh, but a dictionary has more complexity so, uh, so that's what I use for, and, uh, and, you know, it's, it's, I can use it for therapy. I can use it to help with decisions. Um, there were, uh, uh, for, hunter gatherers would use forms of divination to decide which direction they were going to go hunt in. Um, so at the very least, it makes your behavior less predictable because if hunter gatherers are like, doing some divination to figure out which direction they're going to hunt in. The animals never know uh, where they're going to hunt, where they're going to be. So it makes you unpredictable to your adversary and, uh, and doing it in your life to help with decisions. It can shake up your, uh, your actions and make your actions less, uh, less regular and more, more random. Wow. Wow. Seems like a good, you know, some unpredictability and, and spontaneity in a, very pretty yeah. world. Yeah, and and you might get, you know, I don't know, maybe I'm just talented, but I get results like I can't believe that happened. Um, it, it's it seems like evidence that uh, really heavy synchronicity, evidence that that really uh, there's the, there's some some uh, I like to call it the intelligence of chance. Um, uh, people say everything happens for a reason. I don't want to go. That seems a little bit to say everything. That seems a little bit dogmatic, but. I believe in the intelligence of chance and I believe I've seen evidence of the intelligence of chance. And sometimes you have to work with whatever happens. And sometimes what happens happens to work with you. Um, and this is something I, I can see with, uh, and, you know, I don't even know if it's been of, of that much practical value, but it's fun. It's uh, it's fun to like, Oh, I'm deciding whether to do a or do B let me put my finger down and see what comes up and, and, uh, I can get fun results. Wow. I mean, that's really cool, man. That's really cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You should try it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what are you, uh, what are you working on at the moment? Anything or are you just sort of, I'm, yeah. I am continuing to write a, a very complex sci-fi novel. That's, I mean, I don't write about it very much because I don't want to, you know, if you, if you talk about, if you, uh, talk about what you're doing, it tends to make you less motivated to do it. Mm -hmm. So why don't I talk about it too much, but, but, uh, but yeah, um, it's uh, it's this novel. I wrote the first part of it back in 2017, and I continue to like try to stretch it out uh, into something longer. And uh, you know, I, I continue to write like several pages a week. Um, it's I don't know. Have you ever seen the movie Wonder Boys? Um, no. Or, or read no. the book? It's uh, it's uh, it's one of my girlfriend's favorite movies. It's about this guy, this author who uh, who's writing this epic novel. 
and he's just written thousands and thousands of pages, but he can't get any closer to the end. And then at some point at the end, like, uh, like the whole book, like goes into the river and he has to start over. Um, but, uh, yeah, she thinks I'm having the same problem that guy has that I'm just writing thousands of pages and, and not getting anywhere. But, uh, but I've, I've been trying to like be more disciplined. It's so tempting when you're writing fiction, at least when I'm writing fiction to do world building Mm. and, and, I have to always force myself to go back to the story because I'm not going to finish. So now my rule is every time I sit down and write, I have to advance one of the storylines somewhere instead of just filling in world building details. And, uh, and I'm, I'm making slow progress. I, I tied up, uh, uh, a certain like conflict, uh, this, this, uh, I brought a certain plot line to a conclusion just earlier this week. So, uh, so I, it's, I'm still a few years away from finishing, but, I think I'm going to do it. And uh, yeah, I, I find writing fiction a lot more fun and satisfying than writing my blog, but it's also a lot more difficult. Like the, the blog is like my job and, uh, and the fiction is like what I do for fun. Uh, it's, yeah. it's, yeah. Yeah. I can sympathize with that. So it's going to be quite a big old, big book. It sounds like. Yeah. I mean, it's going to have a lot happening in it, but my writing style is so dense that it might not be, I don't think it's going to be 800 pages, but uh but uh, it's going to be a lot, a lot of stuff happening. Yeah. Cool. Well, we look forward to it, and we can find uh, all your work on Rampria dot uh, is dot com, isn't it? Yes, Rampria dot com. Yes. Uh, I, I think. Well, I think we sort of we touched on all these topics. I think it's a pretty good, okay, uh, pretty good place okay. to finish up. It's Great. Good fun. Okay. Yes. Thanks for having me.